today I'm going to conclude uh, the second Corinthians. Uh, thank you for journeying with me uh, over the how many months uh, I've been working through the book of Corinthians. And thank you, Claire, for reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. It's always good to keep the big picture whenever we look at the Bible. The big picture is God wants a people who will be his people, exclusively his. That's what God wants. And he did so by dealing with one thing that kept us estranged from God. That is by sending Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, to uh, die for our sins. He was buried on the third day. He rose again. And he was seen by many witnesses. He instructed his disciples for a period of 40 uh, days. Uh, after that, uh, he ascended uh, into heaven. And uh, then he poured out the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then, uh, uh, since then, the disciples went everywhere and told this good news about God has sent his Christ to reconcile man back to himself. And uh, many, many people believed. They repented of their sin. They turned towards Christ and accepted the, sa the Savior that God has sent. And they became Christ communities, local churches. And uh, local churches were not free of problem because we all came from varied backgrounds and sometimes we slipped back into uh, old way of doing things, old way of thinking. Plus there was also the issue of false teachers bringing, uh, uh, adding to the cross or taking away from the cross or trying to distract people from the cross. So uh, there was a need uh, for leadership and God appointed elders uh, in churches who will teach from the scripture, who will uh, feed the flock uh, to guard the scripture to be. So in a sense, God has given the whole church the responsibility to be guardians of the gospel. It's just not one person's responsibility. It's every member's responsibility uh, to be clear what the gospel is and uh, to proclaim it. Corinth, uh, this is a church that Apostle Paul started and you'd find it in Acts 18. He spends uh, a year and a half there and he uh, preaches Christ, he raises a Christ community. When he moved away, uh, there were other people who came in. Uh, they, these traveling speakers who came in, they came with their style, they came with their rhetoric and uh, they weaved their way in and they tried to consolidate their position by putting Paul down as a person and attacked his character and thereby his ministry. And uh, Paul was deeply, deeply concerned that they might be, the church might be seduced by, uh, from their faithful uh, worship and service to God. That was his big concern. Okay. So Paul is defending his apostleship, and that's what we see in uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, you've got 13 chapters. Obviously, when Paul wrote this letter, he was obviously dictating it, a scribe was writing it. Uh, there was no chapter numbers, no verse numbers. The first part, the first seven chapters, if you look, that, that first chunk, 
uh, chunk, Paul is defending himself. Uh, chapters 8 and 9, he talks about giving because the church at Corinth had responded to an appeal for a need to alleviate the distress which is caused by a famine in Jerusalem and uh, their promise. And Paul is giving them very practical instructions how to give, how to support, uh, how to handle matters of money. And then uh, from chapters 10 to 13, he's again defending his apostleship. So over the last few weeks, we looked at the fact that he was boasting. Boasting is never an easy thing for anyone to do. Uh, anyone who does a presentation, you know, whether it's uh, Greg and Jill, even you guys came and did your presentation, it's kind of a funny feeling. You want to press in what's happening, yet you don't want to draw attention to yourself but to what God is doing. That's, that's the kind of thing. Paul also had that same struggle. He, so what he did, he boasted in the Lord, number one. His boasting was true, accurate, it was factual. Uh, and uh, also the motive, that number three, the motives were pure as to why he was boasting. There was a reason uh, he wanted them to be built up in Christ. So each time someone comes and presents something that they've done, they want you to be encouraged that you're part and parcel of something uh, bigger than just in one place. Sometimes we can lose sight that we're part of something massively bigger what God is doing. Okay, so keep that in mind. So it was not easy for him to boast, but he boasted. And last week we looked at the fact that he said, you made me do it. You made me do it, he said. And I don't want to boast, but you made me do it. And we also looked at the fact that he boasted about differently. He boasted about his weakness. And he talked about the revelation he had, a special revelation where he was transported into the third heavens, a unique experience to him. And we looked at a few practical things. Um, and I said, you know, in today's world, if someone has a very specific or a special revelation, what they do, what they go and sign a, a book deal with a company and go on a, a, a tour and speak about heaven, for example. And uh, Paul did not do that. He, in fact, abstained from speaking about the things which were personal, which God had shown him. We looked at a few practical things. Can God give you a personal experience? Of course he can. Uh, do you share all your personal experience with everybody? No. Uh, you need to discern what is for the congregation and what is for you. And uh, so that's important. Then we, he talked about his weakness, a thorn in the flesh. And we concluded that it was a trial of a sort that he faced. And I'll give you three things about it. I said it was physical because walking with a thorn is not a nice feeling. I've had thorns in my feet when I was running around in India and uh, a broken thorn in your foot is not comfortable at all. Number two, I said it was mental in that uh, he, he was buffeted by this messenger of the adversary. And usually messenger of the adversary, what do they do? They accuse you of your weakness. They accuse you of your failings. They bring everything that you were in the past or your failure. They kind of put it on neon lights. That's the accuser of the brethren. That's what he buffeted by the thing. Number three, um, uh, the third aspect of that, it was very, uh, it also served a spiritual purpose in that it kept us humble. And uh, as we grow older, uh, you realize your frailty and your weakness. You know, there are so many things that you need fixing in your body, whether it be aches or pains or something more bigger, uh, it constantly needs fixing. So, he, uh, last week we said that, uh, he, we concluded that he said, Paul said, I'm going to visit you a third time. 
but I'm afraid. He said, I'm afraid when I come, I may not like what I see. You may not like the way I behave. And he also went on to say that I feel that uh, if when, I'm, when I come, I might see some of you have not repented of your sins. And it might, I'm afraid that it, I might have failed in my ministry somehow. That shows the human side of Paul. Don't we all love to succeed in things we do? And, uh, we, and Paul also had that very real fear. And he used the analogy of a parent. And he said, when I'm coming, I don't want to be a burden to you. I'm not coming here for your money. Or I want you. Uh, that's what he said. And um, this week, uh, we are going to be dealing with one charge first, and then Paul gives them a warning and a blessing. So we're going to look at one charge that he will refute. He will give them a warning, and then he will give a blessing. Shall we start with the charge? In the first charge that we're going to be looking at today is that uh, they said that Paul was tough in his letters, but in person he's a weak guy. He is not much to look at. We know we got extra biblical information. He wasn't he wasn't very tall. He was bow-legged. His eyebrows met. He had a hooked nose. His eyesight was weak, and he was not brilliant like Apollos in his speech. And all sorts of things were there. So you're talking about a Greek culture where they celebrate uh, human achievement to a great deal. So that's where he was. And when you look at that, so they're, they're saying Paul is all tough. He's all talk in his letters, but in person he's weak. But he's, he refutes that and says, I am not weak. And he says, I'm fair, but I'm firm. Okay, take that on board. So I'm, I'm not weak. I'm uh, I'm fair and I'm firm. And, um, um, you know, one of the things I want to point out there is, let's look at the verses, let's jump straight in. It says, this is the third time I'm coming to you. What was the other two times? The first time when he went to start the church, Acts 18, he spends an year and a half there. And the second time, the Paul says he made a brief visit. It was a painful visit, which left an aftertaste. He had to deal with some issues. And uh, now he's saying, I'm coming. Previously, Paul had to change his travel plans. And that was one of the charges he brought against him, saying that he doesn't keep to his travel plans. He doesn't really love you. He says he's coming, he's not coming. He's coming, but he's not coming. But this time he's saying, I'm coming, ready or not. I'm coming. Okay, keep that in mind. So here we are. And he says, then he quotes an Old Testament principle. He says, every charge must be established by two or three witnesses. So if you're ever going to deal with issues, it's, this is a, a practical application. Find out all the facts. Don't jump the gun. Don't be like a bull in a china shop. Don't, just don't fly off the handle. Find out the facts. Take time, ascertain, and make sure that you understood it right. This is equal, this is necessary in office settings, this is necessary in work settings, this is necessary in marriages as well, not to jump the gun and uh, uh, fly off your handle. Okay. And he says, I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and, and I warn them now while I'm absent. So he's here, Paul is giving a warning shot. The first one he did by letter, uh, second time he has done uh, orally, uh, uh, and then uh, then now he's going to come and he's going to uh, ch take uh, confront those things which have not been uh, unconfessed or people are deliberately continuing in their sin. 
it's not a correction is never easy but correction is necessary correction is painful but correction is productive correction needs to be done and today we'll look at uh, an aspect of discipline so in that word disciple it shares a root with the word discipline as well so you know if you are say you're a disciple then it means you're living a disciplined life what is that disciplined life disciplined by what disciplined not by culture but disciplined by the text or the word of god that disciplines you so you got to keep that in mind in 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 bygone days like you know when i was growing up when someone asks you uh, what are you doing i say I've, i'm studying at the university what discipline are you studying they used to ask what discipline are you studying if someone will say i'm doing biochemistry or i'm doing english or i'm doing uh, philosophy or uh, i'm doing physics or political science or something like that they would say i'm doing agriculture what discipline in other words you're spending your time in one particular subject in order to learn and let that learning influence and change you and make you a person who can serve in that discipline you got the picture so uh discipline is something uh that is necessary and uh one of the charges they said was paul was weak in a moment we'll come back and revisit the church discipline in a minute but this paul was weak but paul is saying i'm not weak and he it draws an analogy with christ christ was weak in the sense that he submitted himself uh, to the plan of god he was crucified in weakness but lives by the power of god and says we also are weak in him but in dealing with you we live uh, with him by the power of god they also ask a charge is actually christ speaking through paul and paul is saying yes it is christ who is speaking through me the answer is clear okay now going to the discipline in verses 5 and 6 it starts with the word examine yourself before we go into this word examine yourself it's important for us to remember who is writing this and to whom he's writing this to the church he's writing to the people who are saved people who are elect otherwise you could examine yourself and beat yourself into a, a guilt trip and uh, go off and think like, i'm not well i'm not saved i'm not this i'm not this no 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 he's writing to the saved he's writing to the elect and there are certain flaws and he wants to correct them and he's saying the best way to do that is first of all examine yourself you know when there's a song which probably you guys know better search me o god and know my heart i pray see if there be any wicked way in me try me o savior and cleanse me of the this of all my sin say so it's good to examine yourself when you're examining yourself uh, that's what i call as self discipline there are three disciplines i'm going to bring first one is self discipline the second one is church discipline and number 3 is divine discipline okay self discipline church discipline divine discipline divine discipline is when god disciplines somebody okay you think like will god discipline somebody hebrews 12:6 for the lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives so god is free to discipline anybody at any time because he's god and he will choose the best way 
But remember always, discipline is not punitive, it is always restorative in the church. It's, it's never punitive, it is always restorative because you're already his children. Like, you, like those of your parents, you had to correct your children from time to time and it's not a pleasant experience to correct people. You would agree, sometimes it's, afterwards you feel bad, you feel an aftertaste, you feel like you try to reach out to them and they say, <clears throat> Are, do you love me? <clears throat> they kind of, they bulk at you. But it was the same thing, Paul earlier in the last chapter, we said, Paul says, the more I seem to love you, the less you seem to love me. That, that, that is there. Discipline is not easy, but always remember, it's never punitive, it is always restorative. Self-discipline is examining yourself and see whether you're in Christ. And uh, don't you, or do, in one of the translations put it says, uh, test yourself. Don't you realize that Christ Jesus in, is in you? Obviously, reading between the lines, you know that some people in the Corinthian church were living their lives as though Christ was not living in them. You know, sometimes, you know, when somebody's watching you, when I was a little boy, when the teacher was watching me, I behaved really well. When the teacher took her eyes off me, I was a different boy in the class. So it was, it was necessary. So sometimes we, we lose that, that consciousness, God consciousness. If we know that we, if we have that God consciousness all the time, you will live differently. Because, you know, I, I mean, how often I kind of think, uh, think and say, when I examine myself, I say, Lord, I wish I was a bit more compassionate. I was a bit more loving, a bit more patient. Uh, and the more I'm conscious of God, it enables me to be that bit more patient, that bit more loving, that bit more compassionate, uh, which is always useful. Okay. So uh, let, so what I'm asking you to do is, when I say examine yourself, make it uh, a deliberate pattern of your life of engaging in conversation with God and Christ through the Holy Spirit on a regular basis, irrespective of whatever you're doing. Whether you're doing leisure, whether you're doing uh, uh, some work, uh, whatever you're doing, just engage him. And when you engage him, you're, you're consciously uh, saying, God, I thank you that you're there with me, you're for me, uh, you're always there with me, I need your help, I don't want to do life without you. You're constantly, constantly inviting him. I mean, I mean when, I was seven, when my son was 17, um, I took him to a university open day. And uh, then he, was, uh, he hadn't quite uh, committed his life to Christ. And um, I came and picked him up from home and I was driving him to uh, the University of Gloucester. And uh, he came in with his hoodie on, headphones in, you know, trousers halfway down, you know, all that kind of thing. And he sat in the car and uh, I said to him, uh, shall we pray? And he's got his headphones, whatever he was listening to. I just said, so he took his headphones off and I said, uh, uh, Philip, shall we pray? And he gave me one look. He said, that look said, why? I was thinking, 17 years I've raised him. And he seemed to ask, well, why pray? My, you know, the emotions that surged through me was one of failure, anger, upset, and my natural human reaction would have been to come on him like a ton of bricks. You're asking me now after 17 years, why pray? 
But knowing at that moment of uh, that emotions were churning through, again, the presence of God just filled me for that split second. I felt that tangibleness of the presence of God. What did I do? I thought of myself, if somebody on Gloucester Road came and asked, why should you pray? How would you answer? With gentleness and respect. And I said, simple in simple words, I said, Philip, that's never taken any of his kids to university. I'm slightly apprehensive. It helps me a great deal if I talk things through with God. So are you okay to pray? He said, yes, Dad. We prayed. We went to the university. We are driving back, driving back from Gloucester. On M5, he says something which uh, touched my heart. He said, Dad, thanks for taking me. Many of my friends' dads are not interested. That was the situation, circumstance at the time. And he said, Dad, when I grow up, I want to be like you. I said, wow. If I had flown off that handle and come on him like a ton of bricks, I don't think that conversation would ever have happened. That presence of God helps you to be that much more patient, that much more kind, that much more compassionate, that much more respectful. And uh, uh, yeah, he went to university, he didn't go to Gloucester, he went to Cardiff. And uh, in a second here, he sends me a text message, Dad, I want to be baptized. I'm getting, I'm getting baptized, will you come? And some of you guys were there at his baptism service. So what I'm trying to put across here is uh, self-discipline does not mean beating yourself up. It simply means you compare yourself with the Word of God and say, God, I'm faltering in these areas. I'm not aligned. My wall is slightly like this. It's a bit wonky. Please help me, Lord, to get straight with you. I need your help. I can't do it without you. Please help me, Lord. That's self-discipline. That's the examining of yourself. And uh, being conscious that he's with you in that weakness, in that walk, in that correction. Lastly, church discipline. In Matthew 18, 15 to 17, this is when a brother sins against another brother. Okay, it's not just going around and saying, I don't like your color of your trousers, or I don't like the color of your hair, or it's none of those, or I don't like your accent, or I don't like your deal or your spray, or whatever. That's not about it. If your brother sins against you directly, you, what do you do? You don't go around and change your status in your uh, Facebook or put a tweet or don't do those things. The Bible says, Jesus said this, go, you go and meet that brother one-on-one -on -one and say, I've been hurt, I've been upset. Ask, clarify the situation. Maybe they're not aware. Maybe the moment they're aware, they will sort it out if you're a, if you're a brother. And number two, if he doesn't listen to you, take another person with you. And, and if they still don't listen, then you go and tell the church. And this is where, when Jesus said, go and tell the church, he was not telling, go and tell the universal church, he was telling, go and tell the local church. And then let that church put that brother out of fellowship. Let's put, let me explain what that means. It means that he's basically saying, if we are brothers and sisters, if you're members in the family, we have we behave like a family correct yeah and if he's saying that by your simple by by your um, by sitting on your high house and digging your heels and not putting sorting things out with your brother you're acting not like a family member so they're saying 
you don't, you're not acting like a family member, therefore you might not have certain privileges within the family at that point in time. Namely what? Communion. Okay? So if you want to partake in the communion, it's, one, it's important to put things right between your brothers and sisters to the best of your ability. Sometimes, you know, you might do your bit and the other person may not respond, that's secondary. But on your part, that willing and, uh, to try to put things right. And uh, they say, and Jesus said, if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. A Gentile or a tax collector wouldn't have come into the house of God and partaken of some of the special things in the church. But can they come and visit church, attend church? Of course they can. Okay. So going back and saying, three types of discipline, self-discipline, church discipline, divine discipline. Paul is saying, if you do self-discipline, church discipline need not happen at all. Okay? So, divine discipline, God can choose best way. He's, he's God and his ways are just and what he does is perfect. Okay, keep that in mind. After this, Paul uh, prays and uh, he makes a few prayers. He says, I pray that you may not do wrong. I pray that you do what is right, verses 7 to 10. And he says, I'm praying for your restoration. Three things he's praying for. So I think that's a good prayer for us to pray for our church, uh, for each other in your home groups. Say, Lord, we pray that we may not be people who will do wrong things. Pray and say, God, we want to do right things, right in your sight. Not right in generally in a public opinion, but right in your sight. And if there's any fallouts, God, uh, please restore our relationship with each other. Those are three things you can pray for. And he says, I, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe and use my authority that the Lord has given me. You know, it's, it's easier when you self-correct. You know, it's good uh, to give space for the person to correct. So... I would, I mean, I, I mean, the best way I would say is like, in, in my experience of ministry, there's sometimes you have brothers who do fall into sin. And what I tend to do is I just meet them one-on-one -on -one and I chat with them. And I, I, I ask this question, uh, where are you in terms of God? Where, where are you in terms of your walk? You know, where did I pick that from? Right from the book of Genesis. You know, when Adam sinned, Adam went in hid himself. Adam and Eve hid themselves. And uh, God comes and asks Adam, where are you? And I used to crack up and laugh as a child because I thought like Adam was so good in hiding, even God couldn't find him. You know, he was playing like sardines or uh, spotlight or something like that. He was so good. But actually, what God was doing is going to Adam and saying, Adam, where are you in our relationship? Where are you? Uh, where are you in the walk? Do you want to say something to me? So I've taken that and adapted that in my pastoral work. I often ask people, where are we here? Uh, uh, you know, it looks like this, but I might be wrong. You know, it's always good to go with that approach. It appears this way. It, it, it looks like this. Don't go down high-handed or any of those things. Because sometimes you could be wrong in your perception about people. So go there, and he says, Paul is saying, I'm writing all this so that uh, it might be restored so he doesn't have to be 
uses authority when he sees in person. And he says, I'm all about building you up, guys, not about tearing you down, verse 10. So, uh, in conclusion, then we go to the, uh, the final uh, blessing. That's the warning is done. Now we go into the blessing and the final greeting. It says, finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. In, uh, I think it is in key, uh, King James or New King James, it says, uh, uh, be complete. In other words, in this context, you've got to take that into account. Otherwise, you think, what does complete mean? Uh, what it means is be restored. Um, so rejoice, be restored. Uh, strengthen one another. These are three things uh, you can keep on board. I would just say particularly uh, aim for restoration. That's number one. Number two, uh, strengthen one another. Don't tear people down. Uh, always strengthen one another. Be careful what you speak. And may your uh, words of truth be always be tempered with love. Be of one mind, live in peace. The God of love and peace be with you. And then he says, greet uh, one another with a holy kiss. As a child, I should wonder what a holy kiss was, how long was it, and where was it, etc. Uh, but what he's saying in this context, in, 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 the, uh, in the culture of uh, the Jewish culture, they greeted family members with a kiss. Imagine if you've fallen out with each other. I don't want your kiss. You know, uh, when uh, mobile phones uh, first came and, uh, you know, the smartphones and I was all the time doing this, you know, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And uh, sometimes to the detriment of uh, a family relationship, and Claire would say, you can kiss your phone. You know what I mean? I'm not like that anymore. I corrected myself. So what I'm trying to say here is when things are not restored, there's no kiss in the family. You get that? So Paul is saying, I hope that this all restores everything. Now you can greet each other with a holy kiss. Holy because you're a holy family. Okay. And uh, he finishes off by this thing which every service finishes with. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. So here we are, we're summing up that letter to Corinthians. Church will have troubles. Church will have trying times. Uh, Jesus does not give up on his church just because there is warts and problems and we should not and we should uh, work towards uh, restoration. We should aim for restoration and uh, uh, never be, uh, uh, don't be just kind of fly off the handle and try to jump, uh, jump the gun. Find out facts. Uh, be patient, be loving, be kind. Remember, it's not punitive. You're not trying to put the person down. You're trying to build them up and uh, you speak the truth in love. Okay, uh, shall we pray? Um, Father, we want to thank you for these letters that we possess. Lord, when we look at our lives, uh, we have had periods where we have let you down. We have been thoughtless, we have been unkind, sometimes impatient. 
sometimes too quick. And uh, we're just borrowing those words of Apostle Paul and saying, we pray that we may not do wrong. We pray that we might do right. We pray that we be restored with you and with each other. Help us, Lord, we pray. We thank you that your grace, Jesus, is upon us. Father, we thank you that your love is poured out into our hearts. And we thank you that we share that fellowship with each other through you, Holy Spirit, who's in each one of us. We love you, Lord. We worship you. We ask, Lord, will you build this congregation up, particularly after a difficult time of being apart? Help us, Lord. We want to confess this is your church. You are the head of the church. You are the chief shepherd of the church. And we are your people. And we want to uh, reflect your glory. Uh, Lord, uh, we want to demonstrate what it is to be to live a surrendered life to God in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.